The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Merrymark Medical, Gimpy Foam and Rubber, Luscious Slicks and Bee Positive. In this episode, I get to chat with a man who was Australia's most recorded songwriter. Alan Caswell has had more than 750 of his songs recorded by artists around the world. And while he's still performing and writing music, he's passing on his craft to the next generation of artists. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Alan Caswell, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Great to be here. You're a songwriter of quite a bit of note. Where did it all start? That's a really good question. Look, I've always done it, you know, um, where a lot of my friends had to battle to, to be songwriters and singers and stuff. I came from a show business family, so my dad was a stand-up comedian and uh, my brother and I started writing songs before we left England. So probably I'd have been about 12, he would have been about 10. So we've been doing it like all our lives. So where it started, I'm really not sure. We grew up half of a mountain in North Wales and the only music we heard was the um, reel-to-reel tapes that my Uncle Eric used to send from Liverpool. Um, And uh, so I grew up listening to early country music because he was a country music fanatic and never really lost it. What sort of influences did you have at that stage on the reel-to-reel music? Well, basically it was early George Jones, Tammy Wynette, Hank Williams, you know, all the gods. <laughs> you know. These influences, are they still influences on you now? Yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, you know, over the years, there have been other people that have influenced me. Probably an early one was Bill Ives because uh, uh, my dad was a Bill Ives fan and I, I learned to play guitar and sing with it, Bill Ives songbooks and stuff like that. And You know, but I grew up um, in England in the... In the early, well, I was born in 52, so I grew up in the 60s. And, you know, that was when it was all happening with the Beatles and, and the Stones and all that kind of stuff. Later, we moved to southwest London, and I cycled to school every day in Wimbledon, um, past the Wimbledon Palais. And one week they'd have the Rolling Stones, the next week they'd have Freddie and the Dreamers, the next week they'd have the local garage band, the Yardbirds, you know. So growing up in England at that time, there were lots of influences music wise. Must have been an amazing period to grow up in to look back on. Yeah, they, they say, you're old. Yeah, but I saw all the good bands, you know, so it's, that's an old expression, but it's true. And, you know, and I've always been influenced by um, the music at the, of, uh, that's happening at the time, but also, um, you know, I've got a, big, a good sense of sort of the history of where it all came from. So it's kind of... Um, Look, it's, it's all got value. What are your influences then these days? Look, I think I've always been influenced by songwriters. You know, um, I mean, um, my heroes have always been sort of, um, well, people like Hal David and um, who wrote all the lyrics of Burt Bacharach but never gets any credit for it. Um, and uh, Bob Dylan and, and people like Bob McDill, who was a great songwriter, Harlan Howard, all those great old sort of, Nashville songwriters who wrote the classics and and um, but you know I listen to everything um, and I and I I draw from it you know I listen to a lot of Alan Caswell records because I've got to learn the songs. You know? <laughs> Is that hard to do to listen to yourself? No, I quite like my records. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
No, it's it's not. Um, but uh, you know, when you listen to the record, you cannot. You, every track I've ever done, I've always thought, "Oh, why didn't I do it that way?" You know, but it's too late. They used to have this phrase, um, "It's not final till it's vinyl," and uh, and that pretty well sums it up. I mean, no matter um, how good you make your record, um, if you find a flaw in it, this once people hear it, once it's out there, you can't change it. So, do people find flaws um, in your music? Well, not flaws. Well, yeah, flaws. I mean, it's usually something. That can um, that could have been better, you know. Because I'm it's some, I'm not a perfectionist in most things, but but where my songs are concerned, I am, you know. Um, this look, there's a song, and I won't mention the title, but I won a Golden Guitar for Song of the Year um, with a song that I still don't think um, was as good as the idea, you know. And and yet, you know, it, it came out as a single. People loved it. People still requested at my gigs. It won a golden guitar, so what am I now? You, know? you won the golden guitar for best new talent. How important and how special was that to get that kickstart? Well, it was very unexpected because in those days they didn't name the finalists, um, and I uh, it, timing was perfect. You know, it was not in 1980, and I came into town and and they interviewed me at the radio station about my new about my single. And I thought, this is nice, isn't it? You know, and then they gave me tickets for the awards, which I thought was even better. <laughs> and the night of the awards, we got to we got to the big circus tent where they held the awards, and uh, they led us right down to the front. We're sitting three rows back. I thought, geez, we've got good seats. You know, it wasn't until <laughs> late, and I realised the one. But it came at the, it came at a time when um, on the inside, the song I wrote for Prisoner had just been a big hit, and then that came on top of it, and it really launched my career because. Winning new talent, and then I had that, and that got me a record deal. But I, um, but I, I'm over recording for Polygram now. I'm feeling a lot better, um, and uh, and that got me onto festivals, and that was where I, I met all the artists of the day. And uh, I developed this thing of saying, um, when are we going to write? You know, that was my stock line, and and a lot of them took me up on it. Next thing I know, I've got songs on everybody's albums, and that's what launched my career. It was having my name on everybody else's record that launched it. What's the first song that you got picked up that actually that you got picked up and, and recorded? Pretty much, it was on the inside. Um, that was I think I'd had one song recorded as an album track somewhere um, that on an album that sold about twelve copies. Mm. But um, the first real cut I got was on the inside, which was which you know. And, and when it went straight, when it went up straight to number one, I thought, "Wow, this is easy." And it wasn't until 15 years later I realised that um, a lot of things have to fall into place for that to happen. When you're talking about uh, on the inside, how did it come to be the theme song from Prisoner? And I yeah. believe it nearly wasn't. Well, Prisoner nearly wasn't for a while. Um, look, basically, what happened? I I signed a publishing deal with Chris Gilby, who was my publisher for like 18 and a half years. I knew Chris from previously when he was with Alberts and when he had his own company. And he came back from England to set up ATV Northern Songs. On the Wednesday, I signed a publishing deal. On the Thursday, he was having um, dinner with, um, or lunch with some friends from Grundy's who made the Prisoner series. And he said he'd look in front of music. And they said, well, we've got this new show called Prisoner, but we're going to use Unchained Melody. Righteous and Brothers. Said, yeah. And he said, gee, I hope you got a, a big wallet. And they said, why is it going to be expensive? And he said, it costs you a fortune. You'd be better off getting your own song written. So they said, well, who, who would you have in mind? He said, I signed this guy yesterday and he'd be really good. <laughs> so I got a script for the first two episodes. And uh, 
and I had a gig, uh, that was on the Friday, I had a gig on the Saturday, Sunday I sat down and wrote it in like 45 minutes and uh, that was the most lucrative 45 minutes of my life. And uh, I did a high-tech demo with a $100 nylon string guitar and a, and a mono cassette player and handed it over to Chris. And he, he hadn't even set his office up yet, so he didn't have a CD, a, a cassette player in it. So he just handed it straight over to Grundy's. And they said, what's it like? And he said, oh, I think it's the best thing Alan's ever written, <laughs> not having listened to it. Right? So, then I was in the studio a couple of days later, and uh, Chris came in. He said, you better do a demo of that Christmas song. They want to send it to Melbourne for final approval. That's how quick it happened. And then a week later, I was in the studio with um, Lynn Hamilton playing guitar for her while she sang the song. And she'd only heard it the night before, and she got halfway through and burst into tears. And I thought, no, she's the one. You could tell, you know, just had that vibe. But I found out later that the reason Lynn did it was, uh, did the recording, was because she was a single mum. Her son desperately wanted this bike for Christmas, and it was nearly Christmas. And uh, the bike cost $200. And she, Lynn was signed to RCA, and they, they wanted one of their artists to sing it on the show. So they, they said to Lynn, Look, if you go and sing the demo, um, we'll pay you two hundred dollars. So she only did the demo so that she could buy a bike for her son, you know. And wow. that was the kind of stuff that went down, you know. I mean, I'd been a member of the Castle Brothers for years. My brother, because my dad was Steve Castle, a comedian, so we were the Castle Brothers. And then I sat in Grundy's office and watched watched the first two episodes. And when I saw my name in the credits as Alan Caswell, that was it. You know, I became. I went back to using my real name, and I've and, and I've um, been there ever since. Since then, that song was went to number three in England. It made the country charts in America. Yeah, you know, like I was growing up in North Wales, listening to Paddy Page singing "How Much Is That Doggy in the Window" in Tennessee Walls, and then she recorded on the inside in in, um, in America and made the chart the, the country charts while I was in Nashville. So it's it's just been the song that won't go away. It just keeps coming back and saving my bacon when um, things like COVID happen. <laughs> it's the song that keeps on giving by the sounds of it. Yeah. How did yeah, Lynn yeah. actually get involved? It was one of those things or how was she actually Sorry. selected? Um, oh, well, because she had a deal with RCA who um, had a good relationship with Grundy's and they, they asked her to sing it because they wanted one of their artists singing it on the show. Talking to the producer of the show, um, he, he didn't think on the inside was suitable to open the show, but I didn't write it for that. I wrote it for the end of the show. But um, he said he was glad he was wrong. <laughs> that was a quote. But um, for a long time, it looked like Prisoner wasn't going to get made. They thought it was kind of too hard and too ugly, and they wanted the, uh, the actors to wear makeup, and they wanted this, that, and the other. And, and he said to them, I'm going to on holiday just to get, a, get some focus groups in here and see what they think and the ratings went through the roof so by the time we got back from holidays they wanted 52 episodes so that was how it began and it's been one of the biggest shows ever and it's taken my song all around the world and and to be fair my song's been a hit in places but they didn't have the show as well you know so i think it's been one of those things that that worked for both of us what did you think when you saw the first two episodes that you watched to write the song? What did you think of the show? I actually really liked it. Um, it was it was different from anything that happened before. It was funny because it wasn't until years and years later, because I, I was touring a lot in those days. I couldn't couldn't keep track of this show. 
that um, Marion, my wife and I, set ourselves the target of what, because it came back on, on pay TV. And, and, and so, so we decided that we were going to um, watch the entire series, right? Which, which doesn't sound that hard because it was on twice a day. So, um, <laughs> and we taped it if we were going to be out. And then, but the problem was you go away on tour, you come back and have to watch um, 10 hours of prison <laughs> to catch up. But we watched the whole series. And I, I was kind of proud to be part of it. You know, I mean, it's been fun in recent years. Like I went down to Melbourne for the 40th anniversary of Prisoner. And all the, the actors, well, that were still alive because quite a few of them are no longer with us. Um, were there and I sang on the inside twice. I sang it the first time and then they all had the audience, for, for, if you can imagine 300 hardcore prisoner fans having lunch and they all had the lyrics on a, on a song sheet. So, so I sang it the second time with the whole audience singing it with me and you know, it was fun. How did that feel? It felt great. You know, I mean, I, over the years, see, it's weird. I was, I was part of the success of that show without you being in, that involved in the show. I mean, I did my work 45 minutes in 45 minutes long before the show started. But over the years, I've got to know a lot of the, the actors and stuff. And, and it's been nice. You know, it's been nice to feel part of, of something that was pretty special. Would you like to be known for some of your other songs, though, not just on the inside? Well, yeah. And I, I like to think that I am to a certain extent. But um, this question came up um just recently and if you talk to people about doug ashdown they go oh he was the guy that wrote winter in america and i'm the guy that, that wrote on the inside right now imagine what it'd be like if you were loud and wainwright the third and you were a brilliant songwriter the road. I mean, but it was a bad. classic it was a classic and around that time yeah. yeah you had um i think one of my favorite songs of yours uh used to be a gold song i thought is yeah. Just a brilliant song. Thank you. Um, well, it's look. I, that was the song, in fact, that I was referring to before when I said it could have been better. I, you know, because it, it's like I wrote it with Keith Potter from the Seekers, and, and Keith and I only had one day to write it. And look, the song's been really good to us. It won, a, won us a golden guitar, and 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 you know, and I like. I still play it. I mean, I love playing it because people like it. But I, I, every time I sing it, I go. Yeah, but if I'd done that, we'd done this. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, look, I mean, I, um, it, it is one of the songs that that people associate with me, and I'm certainly not going to knock that. Because I remember as a fledgling DJ out in Mount Isa back in 1983 when it came out, and I absolutely loved it. There were some songs that you just really have a cornerstone that you're trying to throw into your show as many times as you could, and that was one of them, and I just really enjoyed it. See, there's the trick. If you write songs about DJs, they're going to play your record. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was popular with all the DJs. Yeah, no, look, I'm yeah, I'm I'm proud of the song and I'm proud of what it did. But you know, look, the problem is if you ask any songwriter what their favourite song is, it's always the one they just finished. So, what um, is your favourite song? Oh, um, I don't have a favourite. I've got a, a few, you know, that that mean a lot to me, and uh, I'd say. You know, probably in the in my top ten, at least two of them would be kids' songs. That you know, because some of those kids' songs that I wrote, wrote with Don Spencer and and you know with other people, um, with Amber Lawrence more recently, um, I, they're just songs that I really love and songs that I'm really proud of. Um, there's there's a couple of songs I've just formed um, a band with um, Lindsay Waddington. Well, a band, it's a duo, but we have lots of friends that come in and play with us. 
and there's a couple of songs that we've written for, for the new project which I, which I love. King of the Rodeo has always been a big one for me. That was the one that won me my first golden guitar back in 1980. And it's been recorded quite a few times. But I don't, I, I don't really have favourites. I mean, I get out there and, and do a different show every night because I keep track of what I've played. And, and if a song hasn't been played for a while, I feel, I feel guilty about it and play it. You know, Are they so. like your children? You don't have a favourite? I, I really don't have a favourite among my uh, among my kids, and between <laughs> us, we've got eight kids, so that's that's pretty good. No, I don't. I, yeah, it's. Uh, I like each of them for different reasons. Some because I think they're clever. Some because they, they actually, you know, they. I'm actually tapping into something I feel really strongly about. Some because they've done well on the charts. Some because. Um, I wrote them for someone and they nailed it. You know, there's always a reason for a different reason for liking each song. Do you write songs sometimes for other artists with them in mind and then pitch it? Yeah, mostly. In actual fact, what in recent years, and I'm talking about the last 10 or 15, a lot of the songs I've written have been with the artist for their records. Like, right, because I, I'd much rather write with the artist than for the artist because when the artist records your song, if they've written it with you, they take ownership of it and they feel it. A lot of the more successful songs that I've written for other other artists, I've written with them. Who's your favourite artist to work with then when you were working as a songwriting combination? Oh, that's another difficult one. Um, I, I've really enjoyed... Look, I, I loved working with, um, with Michael Carpenter. Loved working with Doug Ashdown. Um, uh, There's it's just too many. I mean, probably where I am now in Lynchburg is... That's the band, not the town. Um, is uh, that's where I feel really comfortable and consequently we're writing great songs but it's it's really difficult to pin it down I mean there's people I love working with like Lachlan Bryan's great um, Damien Caffarella you know there's there's any number of people that I've worked with over over a period of time that, that are just great to work with you know and and also some that that are such good singers that you know that whatever you write is going to sound great at the other end you know um and that's and I, I love writing songs with with female artists because it's a chance for me to to try and write songs that, that give them a chance to be strong, like lyrically. And there's some great voices in this country, and I just love working with them. You've done a lot of work over in the states. Do you prefer to work over there or over here? Uh, no, well, the thing is, I prefer to live here, um, and that's sorry, that's Kevin the Chihuahua. He's our guard dog. <laughs> You're working now with Lindsay Waddington. How is it that every night Watto is a different artist? He must be an absolute joy to get you going and keep you motivated. Yeah, I, I think it's... Look, we tried it. Um, we, we've known each other for a long time. We tried it late last year and just thought we'd get together and write something. And the first song we wrote was uh, was Just Get Better, which is the single at the moment, which is doing really well. And, uh, and it just it got to a point where... Well, just to put it in perspective, right, we decided after we'd written four or five really strong songs that we're going to write a 10-track album and put it out. But by the time we got the 10 tracks done, we, we actually had 13. And the album's due to, to, to go any, um, any day. It should be finished. Um, but we've already written half the next album. And it's just that we have our roles. I mean, I, my strength's always been lyrics. So, so it's like... Um, I, t I, t I control what happens in the lyrics and he controls what happens in the music and the two of them work really well together, but we do cross over. Like he'll throw lyric ideas in and I'll 
make suggestions with the tune, but we work really well as a team. I love co-writing. I love that, that teamwork thing. Um, some songs you just have to write by yourself, but, but a lot of them um, are better for, for who you write with. What's been your biggest influence over the years for songwriting? I don't know that, that I've needed an influence. Uh, it's, look, I run a lot of songwriting workshops and I preach the, the gospel of you've got to love it and it's got to be fun and you've got to enjoy it, right? Because if you enjoy it and, it and if it's fun, you're going to do more of it because it's enjoyable. And the more you do, the better you get at it. And I think that's the inspiration is just enjoying doing it. You know? Is that why you look back at some of your songs like uh, used to be a gold song and go, oh, I could improve that in so many in so many ways? No, that, that's more, um, you, you know, uh, like a guy called Pat Higdon um, back in, in Nashville in the 80s um, said to me, just in an ordinary conversation, and it's become my motto. He said, man, in this town, a great song will make you a million bucks and a good song will make you nothing. <laughs> that was before streaming, right? But, um, but you think about that. And it's, it, the difference between a good song and a great song can be just dotting I's and crossing T's and, and, and worrying it to death till it's, till it's as close to perfect as you can make it. Um, and that's what I mean. Any song I've ever written, I could look back and go, oh, I wouldn't have done that if I was writing it now. You know? Are you getting and, better? And bear in mind, like, something like on the inside, which I'm really proud of, and, and you know, I, I'm not going to change it. I don't really want to change it. But if I look at it, if I was writing that song now with the same idea, I would have written it differently. You know, um, there's plenty of ways of writing every idea that you have. You just got to pick one that, you, that that's fun to do. So, what's the secret of the perfect or a great song, as you say? You've written several. The secret, as far as I'm concerned, and I always strive to write the great song, the secret is to write something that touches people. That's what, it, that's what a hit song does. It makes people... Look, it, you, there's no such thing as a hit song. You can only judge a hit song with hindsight, like after it's sold lots of copies and it's been a, a charted and done, done all that, then it's a hit song. All you can do is try and write a great song and hope you get the right artist at the right time with the right publicist, with the right record company, all that stuff. That turns it into a hit song. I'm not interested in writing something that's okay. It doesn't work for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push that idea. I mean, look, not every song you write is going to be a great song, no matter how hard you try. If the original idea isn't strong enough, you're not gonna, it's not going to be a great song. But you can write really good songs, and, and, they, and you can get them to a stage where they're as good as they're going to be, and, and then you've got to go, okay, fine, I've done that. The book's about songwriting. I've written two about songwriting and one about Alan Caswell, both subjects I know a bit about. You know, so. The latest one was, um, it was it's, it's a book called Secrets of Stronger Songwriting. And when COVID hit um, South Queensland, I just locked myself in my office for, for um, six weeks, 10 hours a day and wrote the book because I needed something to do. You know, I think one of the secrets of my success as a songwriter is I've got a very low boredom threshold. I have to be doing stuff. You know, so uh, I very rarely um, just sit around doing nothing. And that's a cricket song. You know, so. <laughs> but you're also uh, a swimmer, I believe. Uh, no, no, I mean, I swim um, <laughs> because otherwise you sing. Um, no, I just like that that relaxation of, um, of swimming every day. For, um, I had a, a stent put in about um, six, a bit over six months ago, and uh, I thought, Oh, I better start looking after myself. And, the, and I looked at it. The only exercise I enjoy is swimming. I, I, I don't. I'm not a walker or a runner or any of those boring things. 
and I, and I, every day to get to the pool, I have to walk through the gym, and that looks really, really boring. <laughs> um, but but then, but I just swim up and down for half an hour, and I get a lot of song ideas, and and um, I often go for a swim before I go to the studio, and and by the time I get to the studio, I said I say, "What? I got this idea?" You know, it's because I've I've had it while I was swimming. A couple of times I've had it really rolling in my head. And I've had to dash to the change room and whisper it into my phone so I didn't forget it, stuff like that. <laughs> but I still think that um, songwriting, is, it's not a thing I do every day. Um, if I don't have an idea, I don't even try and write. But I get a lot of ideas, so I do write a lot. I probably write more songs than, than most people, which is why I get more songs recorded than most people. Is there an artist that you'd like to record your music? Oh, there's several. I don't know anyone who doesn't want a Willie Nelson cut. I, I, I'd love it. Um, I used to go to Nashville every year and write with a guy called Paul Harrison, and, and, uh, and all we wanted to do was get a, a Don Williams cut. And uh, trip after trip, I'd go there and we'd write these songs for Don Williams. And we, got, we had one on hold at one point. And then uh, Paul later on started writing with Bob McDill, who's one of, who wrote a lot of Don Williams records, and finished up getting his Don Williams cut and, and several number one hits elsewhere in Nashville too. So, I mean, I would have loved... Um, Tammy Wynette and George Jones to do my songs but they're no longer with us so I've got to you know I mean someone like well say overseas uh, Jamie Johnson I think is great I think I'm drawn to the people who who still think that country music should contain country music well that was you know? one thing I was just going to ask you is because there's a new crop of artists out now and really they're a real crossover they're not the traditional country artists what do you think about that as artists are entitled to record anything they want, right? And, and I, I fully support their, them doing anything they want. I think it put, makes the point that first Lynchburg album is called How Country Do Want It. And that's the point. You will never hear a drum loop on a Lynchburg record. You will never hear vocals soaked in melodyne and auto-tune and stuff. And you will never hear um, lightweight lyrics. But I think it's, it's a weird thing. Like the industry has turned into this kind of absolute mess. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to say it, it, it isn't. COVID hasn't helped, but, but this, we, we, in the music business, we suffer from two different pandemics. One's COVID and the other's streaming. So basically, um, it's taken the heart out of what we do in terms of making a living. And that's why um, I've, I, I've been saved by the fact that I still put the enjoyment of, of, of creating songs ahead of anything else I do. Do you enjoy teaching the next yeah, crop of artists? You know, I can teach people things in five minutes that took me 30 years to learn. Um, but then I can teach them things in five minutes that took me five minutes to learn because someone else did 30 years, you know, and and it's it's that thing of passing it on. And, I mean, styles change. You know, when you're talking about country music, uh, it's if it doesn't have a story, if it doesn't sound real, if it doesn't sound like a conversation between me and, and and the person hearing it then to me it's not country music but i mean i'm old i'm entitled to be grumpy and hard to get on with you know it's fine you talk about streaming do you think it's going to be the downfall of musicians in a big way with spotify and things like that well i mean it's killing radio too i'm not against streaming per se when the music industry first started it was people selling sheets of music so that people could sit around the piano at home and play the songs and sing then when records came along, or, or the tubes, or whatever they had, um, they said, oh, that's the end of music because um, people can um, can buy records now. And then when vinyl came in, they said, oh, that's the end of it. 
And then when CDs came, and then when cassettes came in, they said, oh, that's the end of it because it, um, people aren't are going to tape records. And then when CDs came in that were allegedly indestructible, although I've managed to destroy hundreds of them over a period of time, <laughs> um, that was going to be the end of it. You know, and um, it's to me, it's just the next step, although I've never been a fan of MP3s and the way they sound. But I don't think there's anything wrong with streaming. You know, I think people, ha it's a great opportunity for people to access um, the music they want anytime they want and, and, and to, to find new artists and find artists they've never heard of. They hear about an artist and so they just type it in and they can listen to the music. So all of that stuff's great, right? But the bottom line is, uh, I, I had a, I was talking to a guy who, who was at one of the management at, at one of the streaming companies and they were trying to tell us as a group that it was going to be great for us, what they were doing. And I said, the way I put it to him was, look, I said, we're now the dairy farmers of the music business and you're the milk company, right? Wow. Now, <laughs> you, don't, you don't have any milk. You don't have any milk. We have all the milk, right? You don't have any. And all you've got is trucks, right? So you're saying to us, well, you need our trucks to get, to get your music out there or your milk out there, and we'll tell you how much we're going to pay you for your milk. I said, well, that didn't work for the, for the dairy farmers. It sent them all out backwards. And the main difference between streaming companies and milk companies is that the milk companies are much nicer. Wow. You, you got upset, but I mean, I, I couldn't help that. It's not that there's anything wrong with streaming. And, and people aren't getting, although everybody wants to, people want the convenience. And they're prepared to pay for the convenience. They're prepared to pay a subscription to Stupefy or Scamazon or any of those <laughs> groups. They're prepared to pay for that. Right, but when the money comes in, they just sit on the money and they and they give a decent share to the major record companies, but the artists get stuff off, and that's the problem. We were at, at this meeting, um, and my wife put a hand up and said, "So how much per stream are you guys paying?" And they wouldn't answer the question. They said they didn't know, but they wouldn't answer the question. So we just googled it, and I put my hand up and said, "Look, this isn't a question. This is the answer to the question you wouldn't answer. You're paying 0 0.0073." of a cent when you play one of our songs. And they're not even the worst, right? You know what I'm saying? There's worse people than them. So how, how the hell a, a young artist breaking through? I'm okay, I've had a career that's gone for a long time and I wrote this song in 1979 that's still making money around the world. So I'm okay. But I worry about all these young kids that I'm teaching and what they're facing as a future. Um, so this got a bit political, didn't it? But um, I feel strongly about it. And, and no one's going to convince me that turning myself into some kind of cyberspace fanboy so that I've got to get friends to listen to my records so that I can, I can actually make a living. I mean, to me, that's crap, and, you, and I won't entertain it. And I still play country music, which means once COVID's over and I've had my hand operation, I'll be able to go out there and sing to people who will buy CDs at the end of the gig. So nothing changes. And that's why I love country music. Is there a solid fan base that will always be there for country? Do you think? Yeah, look, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to develop a small cult following, so um, so I'm deliberately not trying to get too many. Fan no, I'm just kidding. Um, look, there's a solid fan base, and and the argument that the record companies use, oh, they're all getting old. Yeah, well, they are, but so am I. It's kind of like it's not older artists that are missing out; it's the young artists that are missing out. Because they didn't have that, they didn't have the infrastructure to start with. It's like get with the program. It's like no, make the program fairer. That's that's my take on it.
that's saying it. Paul McCartney said it yesterday, and he knows a bit about it too. The cost of recording the way things happened back in your day when you were at your height, uh, figuratively. Well, I think I'm at my height now, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> when so, when the inside came out, the way the way it was structured was different. And but now a kid can go into the room and record something, and it doesn't cost much with all of the music programs. I do agree with that. I mean, on one level, technology's ripped the heart out of our income, but on another level, it's made it a lot cheaper to produce. But it doesn't balance. It's just, that's one of the saving graces of it. But one of the things I was reading about it recently, and I completely agree with it, is, is that the whole streaming platform and internet platform things, um, have had a bad effect on on the standard of songwriting because there's things you have to do in, in order to compete you have to get that hook get it in as quick as possible like don't give don't set up a song just get straight to the hook and keep pounding the hook in right through the whole song otherwise um in the in the 15 seconds you get to make an impact um you're going to miss out like i love albums right uh, but they're killing albums as an art form the album's going to disappear. I make an album. It's got highs and lows. It's got peaks and troughs. It works as a unit. But now everybody just picks the eyes out of it and just listens to the singles or, or three songs on the album. You know? But not everybody does. And, and I'm making albums for people who want to listen to albums. It's, it's easy. So you structure an album as much as you structure a song? Well, I structure an album exactly the way I would structure a concert. You know, where you come out with something up and then you, you drop it down, about three songs in, you do a ballad. I, I always do on the inside two songs in, partly because it, I know it's going to get their attention, I know they're going to listen to it, and partly to establish who I am. But I always, you always start with something that's, that's real, that gets you on there and makes you feel, lets you relax. But you've got to have slow songs, ballads, funny songs, oh, I do, things that rock, and you, you structure a show like that, and I structure an album like that. But if you're going to go and put it on um, some kind of random thing where it doesn't play the tracks in order or where you'll hear one track of, off my album, one track of Elvis's album, one track off um, Lee Kernigan's album, you're not getting that cohesive run like an album. So they're killing albums as well, which is sad. Working with Lindsay Waddington, do you find that uh, you've got a new audience and you've got a new uh, approach to things which is getting you into different markets well it's 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 early to say we've so far we've had one single out which is currently top five on, on a lot of the charts um, and we've got the album ready to go we haven't been touring because of COVID but we, the first gigs are going to be in um, be in June but I mean I've got a I've got a thing called Jupitrons which is a uh, heredi uh, hereditary disease I get from being a Viking originally, apparently. So, but I've already had two operations, one on each hand, and I've got to have another one because um, it really affects your guitar playing. So that that'll put me out till probably mid-May, and that's when we really start the Lynchburg thing. But we've already got people wanting to book the show because they're fans of of, of what I was or the fans of mine, you know. So putting the two of us together just gives gives it more strength, which certainly does from a songwriting and recording point of view anyway. Do you think Whereas there's any golden guitars in the new album? Uh, I mean, if you start worrying about, I, I think there should be, <laughs> but I think that about every album I make. You know? um, if you start worrying about the vagaries of golden guitars, I mean, look, 
my whole thing is the secret to the golden guitars is making the finals, right? Because if you make the final, that means you're relevant to the industry. Whether you win or not, it's not really the important thing. I tell people who get nominated for the first time, right? If you win that, you're going to be huge for, for about 15 minutes. No, for about <laughs> three days, right? Yeah. And then they forget about you till next year. Uh, and if you don't win, they forget about you within seconds of the, the decision being announced. But you've got six weeks leading up to it to promote the hell out of yourself. And that's that's all I do. I mean, I'm just as proud of the fact that I've been a finalist 44 times as the fact that I won eight golden guitars, you know, because it means that even in years I didn't win, I was there, I was part of it, I was involved, you know. I mean, awards are like charts. Like, um, if you're on a chart, it's a really important chart. And if you're not on it, it's not important. <laughs> and I've been, you know, they say, oh, the charts are bullshit. And I said, yeah, they are, but it's our bullshit and we get to use it, you know, and that's, and that's how it works. Because a lot um, of artists will, when they're on the charts, they really make a big thing about it and, and rightly so. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like I'm, I'm sitting here, you, like you can see about a third, I can see about a third of the awards and stuff. No, no, but, you know, the gold guitars are on the other side of the room and the gold records are down there, you know. Um, I, I have an office with all my awards up there and, and there's always guitars out so that it, it shames me into playing them and, and that gets me writing. And you have to surround yourself with that stuff because you've earned it and because it, that inspires you to keep going and, and to, to try and beat it. Even at my age, I'm, I'm competitive. I sometimes suffer, you know, I think the industry's feeling my age a bit. You know, I'm not. Because <laughs> um, being a songwriter keeps you young because being immature keeps you young. So I'm probably singing better and writing better than I've ever done. But, you, you know, they always have a new box for to fit in, you know. And I've never been good at fitting in boxes. What about the current crop of Australian artists? What do you think about that? Your Amber Lawrence, your, you said uh, your Casa Daly's and Troy, uh, Lee Koenigan and uh, Travis Collins. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when you talk about, about Lee and, and, and Troy, I mean, they've been around for a number of years now. Um, they're not the, the new crop. They're the establishment, right? You know, and they're really talented and they've got great following and they keep putting out good things. Amber's a joy for me to work with. Um, I mean, we've become really good friends. I don't write, I've written one of her grown-up songs with her, and it was a hit. But mostly I've written all the songs I wrote with Amber for her kids' albums. Because, I mean, I had all that experience writing kids', kids music for years, and she's so good at it that we just have fun and just write albums, you know. Um, but she's, she's an incredible all-round talent. She can do... Um, virtually anything she wants to do and get away with it. She's, she's really good. But there's a lot of, I love that kind of Melbourne sort of alt country scene, like Lachlan Bryan in the Wilds, the Weeping Willows, Greta Zilla. Oh, there's, just, there's a lot of them. Andrew Swift, you know, they're all out of Melbourne. They all do a thing. And they all think they're alternative. I'm on a, I listen to it and it sounds like country music to me. I, I don't know what they're alternative to, but, you know, I think they're an alternative to the pop music that's at the other end, you know. So it's kind of, I just like to go down the middle and and, uh, and I like my country music to, to sound country, you know. It's just, just a thing, you know, that I do. Is there too much poppy influence in country in Australia these days? Put it this way. I think every artist has a right to do anything that they want. Um, I, but it worries me that everybody's being pushed to write last month's hit again, you know. <laughs> it's just... It, it reminds me, I started making records in, 
and well, getting around making records in the late 70s, early 80s. And they were inventing artists every every few days, and but they had a pop scene there. You know, the a lot of people, and I'm not bagging anyone, but a lot of people who who are in the country music scene would be in the pop scene if we had one, right? But there isn't a pop scene anymore. There's a kind of rock music scene, and then there's a, um, a blues scene and a alt rock scene, and a you know, but there's not a pop scene anymore. So people who would not naturally, and this is only my opinion, but people who would naturally drift into a pop music situation, there's no gigs for them, right? There's no other for them to play, and there's no. So they've they've actually become inadvertently part of the country music thing. It's this country pop thing, um, and typically of of um, of people in the music business who it publishes and record company, they 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 want to keep throwing them up as being. The new voice of country music. It's like the new face of country music. I mean, to me, country music doesn't need a new face. It's big enough as it is. You know, when we did the, started recording the first um, Lynchburg album, the idea was, okay, we're going to do all music that's, that's easily definable as country music. That's in no way restrictive because we've got a couple of bluegrass songs, we've got, we've got a, a kind of country blues thing, we've got drinking songs, we've got ballads, we've got... <laughs> you know what I mean? Country music's big enough as it is. But when you, you have one little section of it and you, you want to say that's country music, you know, I recognise it as being country music. I write with those, with those guys, you know, and I recognise the talent that goes into it and I recognise the, the value of it. But don't try and tell me that that's all country music is, because it's not, because there's the push ballads, and then there's, there's a, the classic country music, and there's the alt country music, and there's honky-tonk music, and there's bluegrass. So anyone, like, um, either on the right wing or the left wing of, of country music that wants to claim that they own country music, they're going to have a fight from there. We're all part of it, and, and we all have the same rights, and we all have the same aspirations, and don't, um, you know, don't try and put up walls and, and you know, Try and keep people out of where you are. Because you talk about the bush balladeers and they always say that it's sort of an us and them mentality. Your Jeff Browns, your Dean Parrots have their genre and they really stick to it, but they always feel like they're on the outside. How controversial do you want me to be? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I was, a, you know, um, no, I, I don't want to go there. Um, I, I've won the bush ballad golden guitar twice in the last five years. And uh, both times cop all kinds of um, abuse and stuff. Let's get on to COVID. What's the effect do you think COVID is going to have long term on the industry? Do you think it'll recover? Who knows? You know, I'm confident that it will. You can already see um, see the start of it starting to happen. I mean, I'm, I'm starting my post-COVID thing at the end of May. I'm going to Sydney to do a workshop and to do some gigs on the way. And then I start going away doing the Lynchburg things and I'm confident it's going to work I mean I've lived in in um, on the Gold Coast since COVID started and I've hardly experienced anything up here and and when everybody in the other states was whinging because we wouldn't open the border I was back in it because you know why mess with it if it's working you know so it's kind of um, it, it's done us a lot of damage Right, um, obviously, because no one's earned any money for a year, you can't function like that. And on top of that, when, you know, if people haven't been able, to, haven't been buying 
albums have been streaming their music, so we've been making no money there either. The money that you make as an artist these days is from, from doing gigs. So, so the people that, have, that, that haven't bailed out, and a lot of people have, it's going to be hard work, but it keeps getting back to that thing I keep talking about, that, that you've got to love it and you've got to enjoy it. I mean, I still want to get out there, even if it's tough, I still want to get out there and play. I still want to write songs, you know, and that doesn't change. What do you prefer, a big audience or a more intimate surrounding when you're playing and working? The biggest crowd I ever played to was 80,000 people and the smallest was three. Um, <laughs> and I'm pretty comfortable anywhere in between. I think I like to have an audience that listen to the, the words because I'm a lyricist, you know, um, and it's hard to get that. Like if I play Gimpy, I don't want to play on main stage. I want to play in one of the tents where you, you still get 200 people or 120 people or something, but they can hear you apart from the bass and drums coming from the main stage, but they, they can hear the words and you can communicate with them. So I guess for me, a, a mid to smaller crowd suits me, a more intimate crowd suits me better. But that's one, that's the thing. I mean, if you're in a band, it's a whole different thing. If they talk, you just sing over the top of it. Um, if you're sitting on a stool playing songs that you want them to hear the words to and there's people talking, it's a lot harder. What don't you like about audiences then when you're playing? Um, what don't I like? Yeah, what turns you off when you're trying to entertain an audience? Does some behaviour, as you mentioned, talking... What oh, well, yeah, I mean, but but I mean, I've got methods of dealing with it. I mean, my mum is a comedian, so and I toured for a couple of years with Cole Elliott, so I know how to get an audience happening, you know. And Lachlan, Brian, and I wrote this song called "Really Stupid People," and Marion cringes if I do it second song in. It means I'm not happy, and I, and it gives me an opportunity to pay out on some people, you know. Um, <laughs> and I do. Coming from a show business family, how much pressure did it put on to you getting into the industry? None. But there was no pressure on me not getting into the industry either. I just got a, I just got support and encouragement, you know. Um, I didn't have to prove anything. I, they would have supported me whatever I chose to do. But my dad was wrapped that I went into the industry and my brothers did. I mean, we had a band, a family band with my two brothers and my dad at one point, you know. He loved it. I mean, dad died at 56, but he was still doing gigs up until, until that happened. And mum lived to be 90 and... Uh, and she was still following our gigs, still listening to the records, still checking the charts and trying to figure out where I'd be next week. And so, yeah, nothing but support from, from my family. And none of my kids are going into music, which which is fine. My niece Peter's doing doing quite well, you know, in, in the music business. And she's um, my, my younger brother Steve's daughter. She's the only one out of all the kids that went into it. You talk about festivals. You mentioned Gimpy. Do you have a favourite festival and one that you're really looking forward to getting back into? Uh, look, I, I, you know, I like I like all of them because because if you get invited to play at them, you're working. But um, I think my favourite's the Blue Mountains Festival, um, just because I mean I lived in the Blue Mountains for for ten years um, before we moved up to Queensland, and uh, so it was just up the road. But it was, you know, I started in folk music, um, playing folk clubs and stuff because it was me and a guitar singing songs, so it made sense to do it. And, it, and even then, I was playing country music in a folk club situation. But the Blue Mountains Festival, they have great acts from overseas. They have a lot of top acts from around the country. And it's not, not being a... It's more of a music festival than a folk festival, which it used to be, a folk and blues festival. So you can get any kind of music there. So it's a, it's a, and the 
a lot of the people who go there go purely for the music, not for the fact that it's a festival. So uh, I just love the atmosphere there. But um, the Boy at Brook Festival over in Western Australia, I did that. That was that was a great festival. And the, there's a country music festival in Barra in the Clare Valley, which has extra benefits because you can go past the wineries going to and from it. Um, <laughs> no, there's a lot of them, and they're, and they're really good. The Wandong Festival in Melbourne was my favourite, and I played there. I had my birthday in Melbourne 15 years in a row because it always fell on my birth, around my birthday, the Wandong Festival, and they get 15,000 people at it um, for two days, you know, um, and it was, it was great, great festival. But, you know, they come and go, but they're, they're all worthwhile. Now, with Gimpy, though, say, as, as a whole, it seems to have turned away from the country music to more... Uh, music festival is that the way to keep them current um you'd have to ask them that um you know i think there's there's enough uh, i mean i you know i hate it when when people put labels on stuff and say oh this must be country music or or this you know it's it's you got the byron bay blues festival and there's all kinds of stuff happening there you know and that's the big blues festival they have rock acts and they have you know, um, old country acts and stuff like that. So, I mean, look, a festival is just a place where people can go and listen to music and, and they should be applauded for putting on any kind of music festival. So with... And if I fit in with it, I'm going to play it, you know. <laughs> Do you still get the same joy playing to an audience that you did back in the early days? Well, not in the last nine months because of COVID, I haven't been playing, but, um, but yes, you know, I've... Um, I went to a show business school with Eddie Kane when I first started when I was a kid and uh, he used to have a sign up on, on the wall that said, there's no such thing as a bad audience, only a bad performer. You know, and that was the sign. And, I, I, and I've always loved that because, you know, you can win because people are talking, but then it's your job to stop and talk. And the best way to do that is, you know, often when people, this is something I learned, when people are talking and making a noise and yahooing and, and being a pain, you don't gain anything by playing louder. <laughs> you don't. You, you, I always play softer and then then it's irritating for them. They have to drop the volume so they can actually hear it. And if you play louder, then they talk louder so they can talk over the top of you. you know? so I, think, I think you've got to make it interesting so that they stop talking. I mean, it's, it seems logical. The buskers in Tamworth tend to do something similar. They all try and play over each other. Do you think that that's yeah, lost a bit? Got a rule. They've got a rule. The less talent you've got, the louder your PA's got to be. I don't know why. They just do that. Mm. What do you think about those buskers and the current crop that are still trying to, to you know, create a, a future in the industry? What would you say to them? Look, I applaud them doing it. Um, I have to admit that I don't I spend as little time on Peel Street as I can, only because it, it hurts my ears when I've got five different songs all in different keys, all, all flying around at the same time. I find it really difficult. So it's just me. So where do you normally gravitate to uh, when you're in Tamworth? Well, there's usually cricket on, so I stay... No. <laughs> um, look... I've got a lot of friends in the business. You wouldn't know it from this interview, but um, I mean, people I really like and people I get on really well with. And if they're playing, I try and get to their gigs and they try and get to my gigs. And by the time you've done that, the festival's over. You know, I love I, I, I love going to watch the Bushwhackers. I always have done because they're fun. I like going to the Chardonnay show because um, 
especially if you win a golden guitar, because when you walk on stage, everybody's supposed to boo you. It's part of the tradition of the Chardonnay show. And uh, 2020, they, they all had to boo me, so it was a good feeling. It was good. Tamworth, for me, as an artist, I mean, look, you have to face the fact that you don't make any money in Tamworth as an artist because it's so bloody expensive it's just to be there. Everything's really expensive um, and the fees aren't great. Um, and uh, so you go there to catch up with your friends from interstate. You go there because everybody's there and you can, you can get new people hearing you that have never heard you before. It's a trade show and it's, and it's, it's, and it's fun to be there. You know, I've missed like, well, three years counting this year. Um, but three years since 1978, you know, something always brings you back. You know, you certainly don't do it because there's a lot of money to be made. In fact, they've got to be really careful because there's less and less artists going there every year because it's just so expensive they can't afford to do it. How could they change that? Well, they could reduce motel fees for a start. You know how much it costs to rent a room for 10 days, you know? I, I just, we just got in early and booked a room for, for next year and got a decent price, but it's still, you know still probably three times what they'd normally charge. But, you know, I don't know about you, but spending like five grand on a hotel room for 10 days is kind of um, a bit more than I can afford. I think the biggest problem from an artist's perspective is it was hard enough and then they'd have like one concert in the park and that would be, that would be great. And you knew that was on and you knew a lot of people would go to it. But now they have a concert every night. So if you're trying to get a crowd... Um, to a gig and expecting the pay to come in, um, forget it. You know, and that's what, ultimately, that's what, if anything kills the festival, it'll be that. Because artists aren't going there, and, and because they're not going, the musicians aren't going to back them, so you're gonna, it's, they're going to finish up with a festival that only happens in the park. And then they're going to have to charge people to get in, you know, which, you know, if the, but look, you say a festival, they can do it any way they want. I think the problem... The, the reason Tamworth's different to all the other festivals is that it's not really a festival. It never has been. It's a, it's a, a, it's a, con, a, a conglomeration of lots of little gigs everywhere, and it's and everybody's competing with everybody else. And the awards of being there, and the fact that they've always had a festival there pulls people into town and somehow makes it work. But no one's in charge of it. The council aren't in charge of it. They're only in charge of their bit. You know, the venues aren't in charge of it, they're only in charge of their, their bit, so anything's possible. But, you know, for all its faults, I love Tamworth, I love going there, I love the festival, and I love um, playing there, you know, and I'm going to continue to do it until they stop me at the border and won't let me in. You know? <laughs> 80,000 people, tell us about that and how did that feel? Oh, well, that was a one-off thing. That was, you remember when South got kicked out of the... Um, the NRL but illegally and immorally by News Limited and all those turkeys. Um, and uh, I, I wrote a song with a friend of mine called Mark Egan called um, uh, South Can Stand Alone. And somehow I got invited to, to play it at a South fundraiser for, to, to support the, the legal battle. I mean, look, if it's a cause, I'll write a song for it. That's the way, if it's a cause I believe in. Before I knew it, because I used to be a St. George supporter, right? Before I knew it, um, I was on the Save South Committee. And it's like joining the Mafia, right? You know, once you become part of South, like, like you can't leave. Right? <laughs> you know, so I became a, a manic South supporter. And um, 
they had the big rally. I don't know if you remember it in uh, on the town hall steps, um, and and eighty thousand people showed up. Right, it was huge, and that they, there was no thought of keeping the numbers down because it was impossible. And it wasn't just South supporters; it was rugby league supporters all came out. So I had to go out there and sing a song that I wrote the night before. Um, I showed it to Andrew Denton, and, and he said, "Oh, you've got to sing it." I said, "I don't know it." So we got this girl in really short green hot pants to hold up the words, which went over big with the crowd, um, just in case I forgot it, because I only written it the night before. It was a song called You Bastards Have Been Ruining My Life, um, which is about the Murdochs, right? So um, I, I got it started with the chorus, and by the time the chorus came around the second time, 80,000 people yelled out, You Bastards Have Been Ruining My Life. And I thought, that's how Bob Dylan felt, you know, so it was great. I loved it. I notice also a lot of artists these days, and I won't mention any names in this one, but really talented artists that have an iPad in front of them aren't learning their songs and are just singing from the iPad. What do you think about that? Yeah, and a lot of the time, a lot of them have the, the, the track, actual backing tracks on there as well. But um, look, I, something I've always hated and something I've always avoided, I figure if I don't know a song, I'm not going to sing it. But I mean, it's been um, nearly a year now since I since I played a gig, you know. And, I, and if, if if you're trying to carry the number of songs I've written around in your head, it's it's a problem. I I I'd just like to make the statement: I can't guarantee I won't have the lyrics on the stage for the first few gigs either, you know. And don't forget, a lot of artists are playing, to, uh, uh, you know, in an effort to keep stay alive in a tough situation, are playing songs. That, that a crowd pleases that they don't know that well. You know, I wouldn't do it. I mean, I, I need to know a song before I play it, you know. So, you know, it comes under the heading of you do what you've got to do to um, to keep going, you know. So if, if they need to do that, that's it's their thing. I just think if you're looking down and reading something, you're not communicating with the audience. Well, that's exactly right. They don't look at the audience. That I've seen an artist who's very talented and I've seen him really on but i've also seen him just look at his ipad all night and it's yeah. disappointing yeah yeah no i get that i went to a, i went to this this thing and the guy's doing banjo patterson poems and henry lawson poems and he's not missing a beat he's, he's just like nailing this thing just everything was brilliant and it wasn't until later i went up to say hello that i realized he had those screens at the side of the stage the, the, the vote voice prompt things and he was, he was actually reading it, but he's such a good actor that he was able to put it across, and I didn't even know he was doing it. You know, so it depends how it works. If you weren't a songwriter and an artist, what would you be doing, do you think? Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, this is all I've done since 1979. I haven't had a real job. So um, <laughs> I think I've been writing in some way. You know, I mean, I started off, I was going to be a journalist and write songs for a hobby. Now I write songs for a living and I write magazine articles for a hobby. So it would be something creative writing thing. I mean, theoretically, I should be on a pension and just playing golf or something. But, you know, I, I don't play golf that well and I write songs a lot better. So how long do you think you will go for? Well, my hero is Irving Berlin. He was still writing songs at 102. Um, and I'm going to need to be. So probably um, always. You know, like I could stop playing, you know, if I had to. But I, I, I can't see any reason to stop writing songs. I mean, it's, it's, it's so, so much a part of what I do. It's all synchronistic, though, that if you are playing, you want to perform what you right, put together. And you write for yourself to sing. Yeah, I get that. But then um, a lot of the songs I have recorded um, aren't by me. 
and they're not they're not sung by me. So I can still do that. Honestly, gets just as big a thrill out of hearing a song on a radio on the radio that I've written with someone else singing it as as if I'm singing it. You know, I, it it just means something. I still love radio. I still t- like turn the radio on every time I hear one of my songs. I turn it up. You know. <laughs> There was an interview once with Barry Gibb in Rolling Stone. It was like a Rolling Stone interview. And, and um, he's, he's being interviewed, and it's in the middle of the interview, he got up and turned the radio up because he heard one of his songs on the radio. <laughs> and I thought, that's a real songwriter. You know, that takes priority. I remember the, I was driving along and I first heard on the inside on the radio, and I, I didn't run up the back of someone like happens in the movies. I pulled over and it was really bad, bad um, signal and it was static ears or anything, but I'll never forget how that felt, you know, and every time I hear one of my songs on the radio, it still feels the same. Special. Speaking of on the inside, you had a legal battle with Alabama about it. What happened there? Uh, Well, I can't talk about that um, only because we had a settlement and I I signed an agreement to say that I wouldn't talk about it. So I, I actually can't. Does that disappoint um, you that you can't? If anyone wants to look look it up on the net, there's plenty of stuff still hanging around, you know, so, including the songs in question. But I, I'm not prepared to talk about it. From here, you're working with Lindsay Waddington. You're back on the road again. So tell us about where people can find you and how they can get involved in what you're going to be doing over the next six, 12 months. Well, the, f- the first run we're doing, because um, we both live on the Gold Coast, the first run's Harvey Babe. Bundaberg, Rockhampton, and uh, Mackay. So that's the first run with with um, you know two or three of our friends. That you know, so it's a package show. Um, and then beyond that, we're still putting things together. Um, but but my my heart's in doing the Lynchburg thing right now. So I'm more likely you're more likely to find me um, singing with Watto and, and doing the Lynchburg thing. And I mean. But there's no difference, really. I mean, I'm 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 singing songs that I've co-written, um, and I'm I'm singing them. And the difference is that I've got I'm going to have people around me that play great, you know, and 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 it's going to be fun, you know. And the difference for Watto is he's always written these great tunes and put out a whole string of instrumental albums. But now now we're right, now he's writing songs that that have a singer on them and stuff, you know. <laughs> so that's so working really well. I actually. Um, convinced him that he had to sing on this album and he did and he sounded great so um, but probably more of what I sing in the future too Are you looking at some of his older instrumental music and putting words and lyrics to them? Well you know what at this stage we're just writing so many songs we haven't got time to go backwards we're just going forwards the whole time you know I mean like I'll go for a swim and come up with a lyric idea and type it out and send it to him and by the time I get to the studio he's already got a tune happening you know so or I'll get to the studio and he's got a tune like he started off, he'd have a chord progression. Now I go in, he's got guitar, bass, drums, um, and dobro on it, and, and all I got to do is write the lyrics and go in and sing them. You know, that's it's that quick. So um, yeah, I don't think we're gonna. I mean, we can, and we we might well do it. Might revisit some of the some of the tunes, and uh, we'll probably revisit some songs that I that I started that seemed like good ideas at the time and didn't actually progress. We've had we've got a couple of those on the album, and they're, they're great songs now. Whereas before they were kind of just good, you know. And we've rebuilt them, rewritten them, changed the tunes, you know, all that stuff. So it's an ongoing process, and you don't throw anything away. You can always use ideas. 
Are you so surprised, though, that so many artists have picked up your songs and run with them over the years, like the Irish Rovers, Paddy yeah, Page? I don't know if surprise is quite the word. I'm, I'm, I'm always grateful that they have, you know. Um, but I, I think, you know, if, you, if you're writing consistently good songs, um, I'm less surprised by the number of artists that I've written with that record the songs because they, they've committed to writing them and they've, and they've put in to writing those songs. And, and I encourage them to say, this is one of my songs. You know, um, it's one, I, I'll say the same thing. Um, and it's just, uh, it, you know, as I said before, I get just as big a kick out of hearing someone singing a song I've written or co-written as I do if I did it myself. You know, I can't, I, I don't worry too much. It's all about the songs. I sing so that people hear the songs, you know, and that's why I write songs and that's why I run workshops to teach people to write songs because I enjoy it so much I'd like to pass it on. You know? And you do pass it on. You've got two books on, on songwriting. Are there yeah. plans for any more? Not at this stage. Um, I mean, the, the first the first book, um, Writing Great Song Works, was almost out of print and I was just, I was going to reprint it and then I thought, well, that was written 15 years ago and so much has changed about the business that that was when I decided to write Secrets of Stronger Songwriting, which is the latest book, um, because I wanted to bring it up to date and talk about about the music industry as it is now, rather than as it was 15 years ago, because I don't need to tell you how, how much it's changed in that time. And the other book, um, My Version of the Truth, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, that's my autobiography, and, and I, it's 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 talks about surviving the music industry as long as I have and all the things that have gone into that and Tamworth and, and going and doing gigs in Iraq and Afghanistan and all the other things that I've done. But even now I look at the book and, you know, a lot's changed just in the, in the two or three years, uh, the two years since I wrote the book. So if, I'm, if I was going to do more writing, I'd, I think I'd like to go and revisit that book and do a second edition that brings it up to date. You know. How would you like to be remembered then? I just like to be remembered as uh, I, I, I think as just the guy that that had more songs recorded than anyone else in this country. You know, that's what I'd like to be remembered as. Someone who kept coming up with songs that were good enough to, to record. That's the key to it because I don't want to write songs that aren't good enough to record because I've wasted my time. I want to write songs that people want to record. Does it feel good that you've got a lasting legacy? Yeah, but I try not to think about it too much because I just had another birthday. So legacy sounds like something that happens after you've gone. So I don't think about it that much. But yes, it is important to me. Because eight golden guitars is pretty special. Well, I could move it around so I could put another couple up there, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I, my, my, current, my current target is to get from 44 final spots to 50. Right? You know, that means I've got to make the finals another six times. You just have these little goals, you know. So, but I mean, if a, if a couple of them, so at the moment I've written forty four acceptance speeches and only used eight of them. So, you know, <laughs> what's the key to a good acceptance speech? Don't forget your wife, which is what I did last year, and had to race back and push Manfred out of out of the way. <laughs> um, yeah, look, uh, there was one speech I made in two thousand and seven where I announced my retirement from all forms of country music, but that was just after Shane Warne had retired from cricket, um, and I thought it was funny. And uh, But the thing that saved me was that they left, um, it was a golden guitar one with Drew McAllister for vocal collaboration, 
and they left us off the TV broadcast. And I went to the loo when they were getting everybody together for the official photograph. And by the time we got back, they'd already taken it. So officially, um, no one heard that speech and no one remembered it. And no one even knew I won an award. So um, I had to keep going. So <laughs> that's the way it was. Because you've mentioned cricket quite a few times. You must be an absolute cricket tragic. No, I'm an absolute sports tragic. Uh, um, I get up uh, very early, um, my, a, lot, a couple of mornings a week to watch Liverpool play either in the Champions League or in the English soccer. I follow South, um, so I watch them every week. I watch the Swans every week. I watch Test cricket. Um, it's the only interest I have outside music, pretty much. So, um, you know, um, I just... The two most... Uh, I, I'm one of those people who might least favourite, three favourite words in the English language is download the app, right? But I have two apps on my phone that I have to have. One's, um, one's Optus Sports so I can watch English soccer and, and the other's um, KO so that I can watch all the, the cricket and the rugby league and, and Aussie rules. So that's me. Because you wrote a song about the America's Cup and there's the current America's Cup yeah, going on there. Yeah, and I've got to blame Paddy Fitzpatrick who I wrote the song with, um, he, he, was a, he was a keen sailor and he said, you should write. And there were about 15 bloody records out there, you know, uh, like Glenn Shorrock had one and, and they were using the Men at Work song and they had all these others, everybody's waving flags and stuff. And, and so I, I said, no, nah, couldn't be bothered. And I was writing something else and I started writing, writing this little sea shanty thing, which became the Australia's Cup. And uh, so I, I paid $38 to go into my mate's studio and record it with, um, just me and a guitar, and then I overdubbed some drunken sing-along vocals and <laughs> by me and a, an extra guitar. And uh, and Clive Robertson was the breakfast show guy on the ABC in those days, and he was a top-rating guy, and he was brilliant. A great and, voice. Uh, and I, I knew him from, from a previous record, and I, we just lobbed into his studio one morning, and he says, it's not dirty, is it? And I said, no, so he just put it on. Right? <laughs> And they got all these phone calls, people wanting wanting to buy the record. They rang the publishing company. So we just put it out on EMI Custom. And uh, it was and it was one of those things where if if um, we won a race, we'd go and get another 2,000 pressed. And if we lost, we'd, um, <laughs> we'd stop, right? So um, I finished up with 700 copies in my garage and a number one record in Sydney. So, you know, it all worked. You talk about being a sports tragic. Are you following the current America's Cup with uh, Prada and New Zealand going head to head? No, no. It was it was for me. It was Australia against America, and it was it was um, something that had never been done before. I'm not into sailing, but I was into that. Like I guess a lot of Australians suddenly became experts on sailing because we were doing well. And it was such a great story where we were getting we were getting creamed and we had no chance and we just kept coming back. And it was great. It's kind of um, and and the South thing um, for me it was wasn't just a sports story. When I was writing those protest songs, it was um, I mean the Daily Telegraph referred to me as the Bob Dylan of Redfern. I took it as a compliment. <laughs> it was an insult. But to me, they were, that was a human rights issue. I mean, it was like people had had a right to work in a really boring job all week. And then have that, that Saturday when they could go out and watch the team play. And these rich bastards were taking it away from them. So I had to write songs about that, you know. Do you think they killed I, rugby league? No, look, I think it's been a progressive thing. I mean, I, I'm old enough to have seen rugby league played properly where, where, where scrums were competitive and where play the balls were competitive. 
you know, where they didn't have all these stupid rules. And if it was a draw, it was a draw. You know, but when they took away competitive scrums, for me, um, they killed the game. And too much interchange and, you know, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, I quite like watching NFL, but I know what to expect when I go into that. I, I know it's going to go forever. <laughs> you know, and I, I and I can do kind of stuff on my computer while I'm watching it on the TV, so that's fine. I just don't think it's got. I mean, the, the skill levels are incredible, and the athleticism's incredible, and they're much fitter than those guys back then. But it was a better game, I think, um, than than it is now. And the worst thing they ever did was to to get that that bunker thing. I mean, you wouldn't mind if they got it right. <laughs> but you know, half the time they get it wrong and I mean I'm all for like in English soccer the VAR when they had the camera that pointed along the goal line so you could see if the ball actually went over over the line into the goal that was that was great that science at its best you know but um, as soon as uh, you know you get a, a great goal disallowed because someone's toenail was over the line you know um, it's just you know, don't get me started. Well, I'll talk about the Everton game where Van Dyke got, got butchered out of the game for the rest of the season by, um, and the guy didn't even get a yellow card. Don't get me started. I get to, it's too political. You talk to me about sport. That's it doesn't work. Do you write enough songs about it? Look, I write some. You know what? The key to it is for me. I don't write songs for me. I write songs for the people that are going to hear them. So, you know, people are constantly coming to you and saying. Um, things like, oh, there's a song in that, or I've got a great idea for a song, and often they're crap ideas. <laughs> and, and I usually very rudely respond by saying, I think there's a, yeah, I think there's an idea there. I think you should write it. You know, I'm going to write it, but not every idea is a good idea for a song. You know, um, and so I'm 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 pretty picky about what I write about. Often it's just this is a great line. How can we write it? You know. Um, but I'm always conscious of the fact that I want it to, to touch people and make them feel something. I don't care if it makes them want to laugh, cry, dance, get angry, whatever. As long as it's having an effect, then I'm prepared to have a go at it. Well, you have affected a lot of people and you've brought a lot of joy to a lot of people. And let's hope it just continues for many years to come. And it has been an absolute pleasure to chat with you over the bonnet. And uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Controversial a few times, but you know, <laughs> you did ask. Well, Alan Caswell, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Mary Mark Medical. Mary Mark Medical is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick? Ranging from acute medical issues to management of long term chronic conditions. When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, Get the right diagnosis with Merrymark Medical. Contact Merrymark Medical in Gympie on 54811873 or find them at 18 Young Street. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cup to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery and craft foam, even loose spinning foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. Ah, not so squeezy. 
Now, they'll help you get down and dirty and save your feet with rubber flooring and mats, anti-fatigue matting, and they have industrial mats and rubber. If they don't have it, Andrew will get it in for you. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount and you'll receive 10% off the price. That's right, 10%. Only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. That's at Gimpy Foam and Rubber. We can't go without mentioning Luscious Slicks, 100% fruit ice cream. You can find them at local markets and all sorts of events. Mm, They taste good. Good. They are a really delicious alternative to conventional ice cream. Now that's the stuff you may as well strap straight to your thighs. But with Luscious Nicks, it's completely dairy-free, gluten-free, and with no added sugar because there's nothing added. And best of all, it's guilt-free and it tastes great. Look out for Luscious Leaks in the pink marquee at a market or event near you. And finally, the show is brought to you by Be Positive. Be Positive is your one-stop shop in Yandina for first-rate beekeeping supplies and raw honey. It doesn't matter if you're just a backyard beekeeping enthusiast, a semi-professional apiarist, or just interested in bees. Check out Be Positive on the Sunshine Coast or on the net at bepositive.com.au for a wide range of beekeeping equipment and advice that's backed up by more than 20 years' experience. Be Positive also provide apiary services including swarm relocation and hive setups. And Steve is always ready to share a wealth of knowledge about proper beekeeping practices. To get started, check out the online shop at bepositive.com.au and they'll promptly ship orders Australia-wide.